to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. For the last few weeks, I've been talking about the new coronavirus, the Chinese virus, also known as COVID-19. Because honestly, this has been the main subject of news broadcasts everywhere. Not just the main subject, the only subject, not only here in the U.S., but nearly 150 countries around the world and all since January. This insidious virus has disrupted life as we know it, however we know it, everywhere. And it is time we came to terms with the fact that it has changed life and the way we live it, possibly forever, and in ways we never expected. So let's talk about that. Here's a relatively unimportant way that it has changed our lives. It speaks to the personal habits and cultures that define our lives. For example, our perception of personal space has always been a matter of culture. In the Middle East, for example, where you know I lived for a number of years, the area of personal space has always been much smaller than what we would normally expect here in the United States. And when I lived there in the Middle East, I was frequently uncomfortable when someone who grew up there would stand so close to me, maybe just a foot away, face to face, just to have a simple conversation, and I would keep backing up and that other person would keep moving forward to be close in what he or she considered to be a good personal space distance. On the other hand, here in America, where I grew up, the idea of comfortable personal space was more like two feet or more. But today, in the year of COVID-19, most of us share the idea of personal space being six feet, two meters. Now, under normal circumstances, that would be excessive. But today, it not only makes sense, anything less seems uncomfortable, as it should if we all want to stay healthy. When this is all over, I doubt that we will all go back completely to our old normal. And this is just one small example of what might change. I suspect that another part of new normal will also include a great deal more distance learning and working. Some colleges and universities that have tried distance learning as an experiment in the past have found it so effective and so successful that they have instituted it as part of their regular curriculum. And I predict that even when the virus is history, the distance learning will be, have become a permanent fixture in the world of higher education. It may also be a smaller part of our younger children's education, although there are other issues that may prohibit it being universal, such as when there is a single parent or when both parents in a two-parent family need to work. The idea of a small child at home alone with a computer is not consistent with our well-founded ideas of child-rearing. Still, I doubt that remote learning will disappear entirely, even for young children. And here's another thing that may change as a result of the pandemic the way we treat each other. Before the pandemic began, the political divisiveness in America was leading us down the road to real visceral hatred and violence. The art of civil discourse had all but disappeared. 
You've heard me talk about this many times before. But in the face of this killing coronavirus, a kinder side of America is starting to show its face. A face that ignores political differences and sees only the human side, the suffering, the discomfort, the pain, and reaches out a hand to help. And there's a lot of that going on these days. Will it last? I don't know. I hope it will. Maybe, as the threat decreases, we will be able to hold on to the kinder, better side of being an American. I hope it sticks. And here's another change, a significant one, a serious one. Some of us will have lost loved ones in this terrible virus, and our lives will never be the same. We all have had, or will have had, to adjust to personal loss because death is a part of life, and we all experience it at one time or another. But this virus that took the world by surprise and then by storm never had to happen, and the losses we will have to face moving on could have been avoided, at least for now. And that is something we will have to come to terms with, politically, emotionally, personally, and it's going to stay with us for a long time. Because this virus, this pandemic, not only came from China, it should have stayed there. After it appeared, the Chinese government did everything possible to hide it. So here's that story. In the last week, something happened in China that was worthy of attention. Patient Zero, the very first person to have contracted the virus, was identified according to the Chinese government. And according to the South China Morning Post, which is a newspaper from Hong Kong, patient zero appeared in Wuhan on November 17, 2019. Although China did not officially and publicly acknowledge the outbreak until the 29th of December, a month and a half, six weeks. This is the same time frame in which I began reporting about the virus and its beginnings in Wuhan. However, the Chinese did not want to report that there was, in fact, a growing epidemic on their hands. And when they signed the U.S.-China trade deal on January 15th, they were still withholding massive amounts of information about the seriousness of the virus until after the signing. And even then, their data was confused and confusing, particularly since many of the developing cases were subject to sloppy reporting, misreporting, and downright lying. Many patients were reported to be suffering from pneumonia instead of from the virus, and some were never diagnosed at all. And rather than reporting the rapidly spreading epidemic, the Chinese government covered it up and punished those who tried to report it. And the data in hospitals were purposely underreported. So the rest of the world had no idea how seriously this growing rate of infection was in China or how brutal were the methods the Chinese government used to keep it under wraps. Early on, when international assistance might have helped stem the tide of the virus's rapid spread and the enormous death toll, the Chinese kept silent. They did not seek, nor did they accept, the assistance offered by the World Health Organization and America's CDC. But you know all this because if you've been listening to the Friedman Report, I've been reporting it to you since the end of January. 
On January 27th, America Out Loud published an article that I wrote called What is China Hiding? in which I told you that, quote, the world is facing a crisis, one that trumps trade deals, impeachment, elections, and even war. The irony is that despite our connection with instant communications, social media, and up-to-the-minute news, most Americans are, for the most part, ignoring it. The number of people infected in Wuhan, who are now in the United States, has remained at five that we know of. But we also know that five million people, almost half the city's population, left Wuhan for the Lunar New Year holiday. And some of them, some of them came to visit America. And we don't know where they went. For some of them, the asymptomatic two-week incubation period had barely begun. The situation in the United States was only just beginning to develop. But in China, the reality was different. On January 29th, only two days later, on that week's Friedman Report, I reported to you that, quote, a nurse at one of the hospitals in Wuhan posted a video early this week in which she claimed that there were already 90,000 cases throughout China. 90,000 cases! And that was only two days after the official numbers reported by the government of China were that 2,493 cases existed in all of China. 2,493 against 90,000. That is a huge discrepancy. And at that time, photographs and videos were also starting to leak out of China from inside hospitals in Wuhan, which showed swarms of people jamming the corridors with body bags lining the walls and other videos of people simply dropping on the street where they stood. That was in China. In the United States, we were still in denial, even though the first cases were already starting to appear on our West Coast. In the last days of January, both Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity reported about the virus that was developing in China. I'm sure they didn't see my article, but I was there right alongside them broadcasting and reporting about this virus and what was going on in China and how we needed to pay attention to it. The first fatality from the virus occurred in Washington State on January 29th. At first, neither the CDC nor the World Health Organization nor the United States government was willing to call this a pandemic. In fact, officials here in the United States kept telling us that the risk to Americans was, quote, low. So when the virus came, as I and others had been warning, America was not ready, and we're still not ready. We ignored the warnings of the spreading virus. We ignored what was happening in China. We ignored what was starting to happen in South Korea and what was happening in Italy. And we lost precious time in the process because we refused to recognize the real threat. To his credit, President Trump acted swiftly to cut off the source of the virus by suspending entry of most non-U.S. citizens arriving either directly from China or who had recently been in China. The president said, quote, foreign nationals other than immediate family of United States citizens and permanent residents who had traveled in China in the last 14 days will be denied entry into the United States, unquote. And he was accused of being xenophobic. But he did not give in and prevented an unknown number of carriers of the virus 
from entering the country. It was a beginning. But even then, when we knew but weren't ready to acknowledge how close the threat really was, we didn't begin to ramp up our medical services, our hospitals, our emergency rooms, our respirators, and our emergency equipment, or to redirect our supply chains, which then depended heavily on China, which was in the process of shutting down. I'm told that this happened because advisors to the president, particularly from the CDC and the World Health Organization, still thought that the risk of Americans contracting the virus in the United States was low. I don't know what happened in the White House or whether or not the president was provided bad or insufficient information. I do know that he tried to calm the American people down by telling them it wasn't so bad and that the virus was being 100% contained. Maybe that was what he was told, or maybe that was what he thought, for whatever reason. But it was the wrong information, and in the end, it didn't help. Consider this. If I knew about this new virus that was spreading in Wuhan and killing people right and left, how was it possible that the president didn't know about it? Was his intelligence so bad because the people who briefed him didn't want to interrupt his negotiations on the Chinese-American trade deal? Because that wasn't signed until January 15th. Did they make the judgment call that this was just something that would pass and then they didn't tell him? In fact, the CDC and the World Health Organization did not even begin to treat it seriously or to properly prepare for what is already happening in Italy and South Korea. And when it finally came, we were not ready. I want to say something about the American people. We're strong. And in a situation where so much is at stake, we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. You've heard me say that before. But in order to do that, we need to have the information about what is really going on. And we were not getting it. And then the numbers began to change alarmingly. And finally, we started to get the real data and we learned about the real threat. Now, less than eight weeks after the first cases appeared in America, we have reached nearly 47,000 cases and at least 593 people have died. And those numbers, they're still growing every day. So now, finally, Americans are taking this seriously. Finally, because the facts are, frankly, scary. We have gone from business as usual to panic buying in the store, stripping the shelves of everything from chicken to toilet paper. At first, the airports were packed with people trying to get home and having to wait for hours on endless lines so that they could be processed in the face of this pandemic. And people were urged to keep space between them, at least six feet. And they called it practicing social distance. And they were told to avoid crowds, avoid touching their faces, washing their hands constantly and for at least 20 seconds every time. But there were not enough test kits to identify all the cases so that even if a person had been exposed but was asymptomatic, she wouldn't be able to get a test. And there were not enough staffed hospital beds to accommodate a full-blown epidemic in the United States in which millions might require treatment. Did you know that before this all began, we had only 925,000 staffed beds in the nation's entire healthcare system. That may seem like a lot, but it's not nearly enough for what we might need in the very near future. And there is a shortage of respirators and masks 
and gloves for healthcare providers so that they could protect themselves from the virus. We were totally unprepared for what was about to happen. Now I need to take a break, but after the break I want to talk about the difficulties that our legislators in Washington have been having as they tried to pass a bill that would give immediate economic relief to Americans who have been suffering from the shutdowns of businesses, offices, and schools, and the effect that the COVID-19 crisis is having on our economy, on the parents who live from paycheck to paycheck and now have no jobs or income at least for the next few weeks, and for the kids who will drive them crazy because their schools are closed, maybe even until the summer, and for the shopkeepers and the restaurant workers who depend on their tips, and the the individual investors who are watching their savings disappear as the stock market takes its worst hit that it has seen since the crash in October 1987. It's far from over, but one of the real questions facing us is what will be the long-term impact on all these aspects of our lives. That's what I'll talk about next, so stay tuned. I'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The president has come under a great deal of criticism because we were not ready. And he was even accused of xenophobia because he dared to mention that this virus came from China, which of course it did. Now to be fair, it is difficult to see how anyone could have foreseen the devastation that could be caused so quickly by what was most likely, in my opinion, which is based on some very serious intelligence, an engineered virus designed to be a weapon of war. The COVID-19 is a virus unlike anything we have ever seen before, and even the experts are not sure how it will change and how it will react as time passes. They don't know what to expect of it, they don't know what it will do next, and they don't know whether it will pass, whether it will come and go and come again, whether it will react to weather, they just don't know. Still, as I mentioned before, I began reporting on this on January 27th, and that was after sitting on the story for several days. Honestly, when I first heard this story, I didn't think anyone would believe it, and I wanted to check my facts. But on January 27th, the story, What is China Hiding?, was published by America Out Loud. As of Recent statements from China, patient zero, the very first COVID-19 patient, was a middle-aged man in Wuhan who was identified on November 17, 2019. The beginning for us was December 31st, when China alerted the World Health Organization that there was a string of pneumonia-like cases in Wuhan. But by then, China was already being overwhelmed by the new virus. 
The photos and videos that I described before, they were beginning to come out of China despite the government's best efforts to stop them, and they were appalling. What we do know is that unlike the plagues of the past, like the Black Plague of the Dark Ages, and even the Spanish flu of 1918, that may have killed as many as 50 million people. We now have the technology and the tools and the know-how about how viruses spread to defeat this virus before it annihilates us. We can do it. So now everyone is jumping on board with a combination of enthusiasm and terror. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio ignored the obvious threat and said he would not close the city's schools. That is, until the teachers and school aides threatened a sick-out strike. And then he announced that the schools would be closed immediately. On March 5th, California's Governor Gavin Newsom ordered all Californians to stay home, period. It was the first total mandatory order that was issued. It is still in force and it applies to every one of the 40 million people living in California, unless they have critical jobs, or unless, of course, they are homeless. According to the executive order, those included jobs necessary to maintain, to maintain continuity of operation of the federal critical infrastructure sectors, unquote, according to the executive order. Los Angeles alone has reported 662 cases and 11 people have died from the virus. Included on this list of essential services are gas stations, pharmacies, convenience stores, banks, food banks, laundromats, and takeout restaurants who were also permitted to remain in operation. The order also permits limited outdoor exercise, such as walking and bicycle riding, so long as people keep their social distances. That's California. Now, in the tri-states of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, the respective governors have issued a uniform order to close all restaurants and bars that serve food for Eden customers. At least 160,000 employees have been affected. Bars that don't serve food closed immediately and were told they might be open, they might be open, by April 30th. In a revised executive order, movie theaters, gyms, fitness centers, sporting and recreational centers and studios were also ordered to close up. The number of people who will be affected by these closures is staggering, and we probably don't know the half of it, and of course, other states have jumped on the bandwagon. So as the number of people who have caught the COVID-19 virus in the United States continues to grow, the people in Europe are way ahead of us. Even as our numbers are rising, they are nothing compared to Italy, for example. As of Monday, March 16th, the number of infections in Italy was nearly 28,000 and they had already had more than 2,000 deaths. But by the morning of March 24th, Italy's virus death toll stood at 6,077, with nearly 
4,000 people infected. Globally, the numbers are much worse, of course, with more than 370,000 people infected worldwide with 16,000 deaths. And these numbers do not take into account the underreporting in places like China and Iran and North Korea. But as we grapple with this terrible virus, how is the way we deal with it going to affect us? How long will it last? How is it going to change America? How is it going to change us? Well, here's something that hasn't changed, not yet at least. On Monday, March 23rd, Congressional Democrats demonstrated to us the terrible lengths to which they will go in order to push their radical liberal agenda and their totally fraudulent Green New Deal at the expense of the American people. I talked about this a little bit in the first section, but I, I need to talk about it some more because this is something so egregious. I, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to verbalize it in a way that would express my outrage, my anger, my, I'm furious because the Democrats unabashedly tried to sabotage a Senate bill that would provide desperately needed relief to the millions of Americans who have lost or are about to lose their jobs and whose lives were otherwise disrupted as a result of a virus that was brought to our economy, to our country, and has brought life to a virtual standstill. There was a bill. It had been negotiated for days by teams of four senators two Democrats and two Republicans on each team, and it was almost ready for a vote. Now, this bill would have done some wonderful things. It would have given every man and woman who earned less than $75,000 individually or, more than, or less than $150,000 together. It would have given each adult $1,200. And then in addition to that, for each child in the family, they would get an additional $500. Now, it also would have given support in the way of financial relief to small businesses. A small business in this country is a company with fewer than 500 employees. And it would have given larger companies also some financial relief in the form of loans which had to be paid back. And the purpose of this money to small and large businesses was to enable them to keep paying salaries to their employees. Now that was, that, that's a good deal. And it's essential because right now we are facing a massive unemployment in this country. So this bill was going to help the workers who would otherwise be unemployed, be laid off because of the coronavirus. So what happened? They were going to take a vote. 
Now, this wasn't a vote on the bill. It's what they called a procedural vote for cloture, a vote just to bring the bill to the floor and then open it up for discussion for up to 30 hours before a vote would be taken on the bill itself. But just before the vote on cloture could be taken, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi flew into Washington from her district in California and torpedoed all of the tough bipartisan work in the Senate by demanding that her own issues be included in the bills, including an entire laundry list of Democrat issues that had nothing to do with the virus or the life and death issues that have created the crisis that has virtually shut down our country. What in the world was this woman thinking? She came back from California with more than a thousand pages of irrelevant requirements and made it very clear that whatever bill the Senate passed, it would not pass in Congress, which had to approve it in the end, unless it also contained her laundry list of special projects that had nothing to do with the crisis that this bill was supposed to be addressing. This was worse than outrageous. It was criminal. It was intended to sabotage a critical bill that had only one aim, to provide relief to the millions of Americans who were hurt and were hurting because of the coronavirus that had cost them their jobs and the ability to provide for their families. Americans were afraid of the virus that had stolen their livelihood and afraid of the future. You know, there is a hopelessness and a helplessness that comes from being unable to provide for your family, for your children, through no fault of your own. This is the stuff that suicides are made of. And the Democrats were very serious about their intent. House Majority Whip James Claiborne gave their purpose away during a conference call with fellow Democrats when he said this, quote, this is a tremendous opportunity to restructure things to fit our vision, our vision. In other words, fellow Americans, be damned. Political priorities take precedence over everything else including American lives. And yet, sometime during the night, Nancy Pelosi saw the light and said on Tuesday morning that she would not pursue her bill at this time. And yet, the bill still did not pass today. Why? Because the Democrats have been nitpicking at the tiniest little nickel and dime issues and there was no way to get to a vote. You know, when politics interfere with saving lives and making our world a better place, then there is something very wrong. We saw where that led in China, where the government thought it was more important to save face than to save lives. And if my sources are correct, it was millions, not thousands of people who lost their lives. On Tuesday, the president held a virtual town hall in which he suggested that he would like to see the country back to work. He said, I'd love to have the country opened up and raring to go by Easter. That's two and a half weeks from now. And that was good news for some who can't wait to get back to their jobs and their salaries. But here's the thing. So far, 
the country has been fairly lucky that the numbers of infected and those of fatalities are still fairly low. As of Tuesday, March 24th, fewer than 500 people in America have died from the virus. Now remember, we have a population of 330 million. And some people are taking it as a sign that we can relax the restrictions. But the problem with that thinking may be that they may be confusing cause and effect. If you consider that the reason for the numbers that are so low. Now, one of the nice things that's happening as a result of the coronavirus epidemic pandemic. And it is, you know, there are always good things that come out of tragedy. Americans are developing their ingenuity and applying it to these problems. Now, for example, in order to keep people who are suspected of carrying the coronavirus from mingling with others in the emergency room, the Central Maine Medical Center in Lewiston, Maine, set up a tent in the parking lot where people who are coughing or having other kinds of respiratory symptoms are diverted for testing. Uh, the Lexington Medical Center in West Columbia, South Carolina, did the same thing outside its emergency room. And in Seattle, which had the first and the most dramatic cluster of coronavirus deaths because most of them were in a nursing home. The University of Washington Medicine set up drive-through testing in a hospital parking lot and they have screened hundreds of faculty members, staff members, trainees, And the nurses come to each car, reach through the car window, and they use and they swab the people in the car and then collect the samples. They're going to be applying the same testing procedures to patients this week. Now, these, this kind of ingenuity Another side effect of this uh, crisis is that another side effect, which is not so nice of this crisis, is that, is that Ill, things like elective surgery, non-emergency procedures are being postponed because the overwhelming, because the hospitals are overwhelmed because the overwhelming responsibility of testing and treating coronavirus patients is canceling out every other medical procedure that is not essential. Things that don't need to be done right now simply won't be done. Another thing that's happening in New York State, for example, the health department is accelerating the regulations for getting nursing students certified so that they can get to work more quickly. And they're asking retired doctors and nurses to also come to work. And there's another thing that's going on. This is just keeps adding up, but there's another thing that's going on. And that is that 
the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association and the American Hospital Association have asked for a presidential emergency declaration that would allow doctors and nurses to work across state lines and would waive certain rules that would free up hospital beds. You know, this is the kind of emergency that has the potential for bringing the American people together. And I, for one, would wish that if there's anything good to come from this, this will be it. That the better part of who we are as Americans will come to the surface and will heal some of the wounds that have been challenging us over the past few years. Now, I'm going to take another quick break, but I will be back and we will talk some more about some of the major issues. And I also will give you a couple of items on you just can't make this stuff up. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service Sacrifice Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. This section would not be complete without an inane quote from AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who provides us with a seemingly endless amount of material. She's the gift that keeps giving. And once again, we are not disappointed. Fox News is reporting that AOC has a complaint about the American people's dining choices during the age of coronavirus. In the midst of the crisis spreading across the United States, when sports events are being canceled, stores are being closed, jobs are being lost, schools are canceled, and entire cities are being put under quarantine, AOC is busy accusing Americans of being racist for not eating more Chinese food. Hmm. Here's the actual quote, quote, honestly, it sounds almost so silly to say, but there's a lot of restaurants that are feeling the pain of racism, where people are literally not patroning 
Chinese restaurants. And they're not patroning Asian restaurants because of just straight up racism around the coronavirus, unquote. She said that during an Instagram live session. Yes, she is actually accusing Americans of being racist. You heard the quote. Here's the context. While thousands of Americans have contracted the Wuhan virus and dozens of Americans have died from it, the millions are worried about whether they still have work to go to, if they're allowed to go to it, if it is safe to take the subway or even to leave the house no less go to a restaurant, AOC has accused us of being racist because we don't eat enough Chinese food, really. No, AOC, you idiot, we're not racist. We're just worried. And you know what? You don't make it any better. And by the way, patroning is not a word. Maybe you meant to say patronizing. That's a good word. Why don't you stop doing it to the people you think you are better than? You just can't make this stuff up, my friends. You just can't. And then we have Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, who refused to close the schools until the teachers threatened to go on strike. And then he told every New Yorker to stay home and self-isolate. But he was criticized for going out to the gym. Yeah, you heard me right. We had to stay home, but he could go to the gym. That would hardly seem to be an essential activity, don't you think? But he had an answer for his critics. He referred to his jaunts to the gym like this. Quote, I do not for a moment think there was anything problematic because I knew the dynamics. And again, I have to stay healthy so I can make the decisions for the people of the city. Unquote. Oh, sure, Mayo de Blasio, you're far more important than the people you make the rules for. You have no need to set an example for the rest of us, do you? Sorry, friends, you just can't make this stuff up. And speaking of racism, you know, you're not supposed to say things like Chinese virus or Wuhan virus when we refer to the pandemic that came roaring out of China and is now ravaging much of the world. So here we have some medical advice from the mullahs in Iran, and this will be very politically correct. Here's one mullah has says, quote, they made up a story about a virus. Shaking hands keeps the devil away. The only vaccine we have is for people to greet each other with kisses on the cheek and shaking hands so that the virus is transferred and people become immune. But they are forbidding this. Shaking hands is forbidden. They banned going to the mosque. Shaking hands at the mosque, which is encouraged by these monsters, are the reason why the coronavirus spread so rapidly in Iran. Here's a mullah telling his people to shake hands and kiss each other on the cheek, hoping it would lead to more infections and eventually people would become immune. Now last, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, I told you about the super pious Muslims in Iran who lick and kiss their holy shrines, which not only does not make them immune, it actually makes them sick because it expedites the spread of the coronavirus in a very dramatic way. 
You know, you just can't make this stuff up. No, you can't. Now, but on a more serious note, with all these things that I, this mullah said they had to do in order to, I don't know, in order to survive this virus and build immunity to it, Iran is suffering from the virus in ways that are so monstrous. It's like in China. Newly released satellite photographs dating back to the end of February show that Iranians are building massive new graves in a cemetery in the holy city of Qom, in which they appear to be burying a huge number of their dead. Qom is a city of about 1.2 million people, and official figures suggest that the number of people there who have contracted the virus is over 840. But like China, Iran does not release accurate figures of its dead. And judging from the satellite pictures, it looks like the number of people buried in these huge burial grounds, each of which is the size of a football stadium, and there are many of these burial grounds. In other words, it's not just one football stadium, it's several. There may already be tens of thousands of people buried there. It's, it's pretty rough. You know, the people of Iran, they're pretty nice people, but their government is evil, and they are now suffering, like the Chinese, from the excesses of the people who lead them. Okay, let's get back to the United States and another serious subject. It's actually a very serious issue that the president is facing today. This is one of those issues that is epic in its proportions. And it's one our president will have to make very soon. Here's a little background. On Tuesday, the president held a virtual town hall in which he suggested that he would like to see the country get back to work. He said, quote, I'd love to have the country opened up and raring to go by Easter. That's two and a half weeks from now. That was good news for some who can't wait to get back to their jobs and their salaries. But here's the thing. So far, the country has been fairly lucky that the numbers of infected and those of fatalities are fairly low. As of Tuesday, March 24th, fewer than 500 people in America have died from the virus, and some people are taking that as a sign that we can now relax the restrictions. The problem with that thinking may be that these people are confusing cause and effect. If you consider the fact that the reason that the numbers are so low is because we have had those restrictions in place, then the numbers are not a sign that we should relax them. And that leads to the dilemma facing the president and the governors and the mayors who have been making these decisions. If he relaxes the restrictions and the numbers go up, then he will have lost the roll of the dice and more people will get sick and some will die. On the other hand, as he said on Tuesday, quote, our country is not built to shut down. Our people are full of vim and vigor and energy. They don't want to be locked into a house or apartment or some space. We're not built that way, unquote. But let's take an example. New York City took its time closing down. Mayor de Blasio told New Yorkers to, quote, 
mostly go about their daily lives, sending children to schools, frequenting the city's businesses. And he said this even as the coronavirus was spreading through the city. Dr. Deborah Burks, who serves as the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, said at a press conference on March 24th, quote, the New York metro area has an attack rate close to one in 1,000. This is five times what other areas are seeing there. We're finding that 28% of the submitted specimens are positive. It's less than 8% in the rest of the country. Unquote. So the dilemma is a real one. We don't know if the low numbers are a result of the stay-at-home policy or if it's a simply a number that represents perhaps our general vulnerability to the virus because we are generally healthier or genetically stronger than people in other countries. But then how do you explain New York City, which is now the epicenter of the coronavirus in the United States? And there is, of course, another issue. If we shut down for too long, our economy is likely to fail and America will stop being what it has been for 244 years. Instead, it will be a nation of broken people. The president is right. He said that it would be a recipe for mass suicides as the jobs disappear, as despair overtakes hope. And to complicate the equation, the World Health Organization says that in America, we have not yet seen the worst of the virus. President Trump is in a very difficult position, and whatever decision he takes, he will be castigated by many. In his virtual town hall, he said, the cure cannot be worse than the disease. And he's right. On balance, there is no correct decision here, partly because there is so much we don't know about this virus, partly because we do not have a cure or a vaccine to halt the spread, and partly because we have no way of foretelling the future outcome of either decision. Now, there is another, another situation that's raising its ugly head in our country, and it actually has to do with racism. Racism against Asians, because somehow, in the minds of the dim-witted, they're linked to the China virus. To be frank, many Caucasians can't tell the difference between different Asian ethnicities. One of the most ridiculous and very painful situations like this happened after 9-11 when Sikh men were being attacked by ignorant Americans out of the mistaken assumption that they were Muslims. That was wrong in so many ways. For one thing, they wear a kind of turban, which Muslims do not. Muslims sometimes wear the keffiyeh, which is totally different in every way. The only thing that makes it like a turban is that it's also worn on the head. And the Sikhs are not Muslim. They don't come from the Middle East. They originate from the Punjab region of India. But after 9-11, because of ignorance and gross intolerance, Many Sikhs were beaten because they were mistaken for Muslims. That's just plain stupidity, all brawn, no brain. But now there's a new situation. Anyone who is Asian 
can be mistaken for Chinese. And, well, you understand, Chinese, Chinese virus, no connection there, just plain stupidity. Here's one story that illustrates how badly, this, how badly this can go wrong. A woman wrote, quote, I got off the bus at my usual bus stop at the end of the day, and as I headed to my apartment, a group of men shouted while looking in my direction, quote, see that Japanese chick over there? Stay away from her if you don't want to get the coronavirus, unquote. That was so stupid in so many ways. First of all, as it turns out, she is Korean-American. She's not Japanese, and she certainly isn't Chinese. You know, I mean, I don't have to tell you, the coronavirus originated in Wuhan, China, not Japan. So they were stupid on many levels. And as it happens, this woman lives in Brooklyn and hasn't been overseas in quite a long time. This was just raw xenophobia, and these men were nothing more than just plain stupid. But that is, unfortunately, at the root of xenophobia which has no rhyme or reason, except as an expression of primal stupidity and hatred of the basest kind. We would do well to get rid of it in this country if we could. Unfortunately, the basest kinds of character exist in every country and every part of the world. We can't escape them. We have to learn to overcome them, to live with them somehow, to ignore them when we can. We're living in unprecedented times, my friends. This, this is the time to be creative like the people who put up the tent in the, in the parking lot. And like the scientists and technicians who are not defeated by the coronavirus, but they are challenged and they're coming up with new tests and new medicines and new vaccines. And they will beat this devil. They will succeed in the challenge and overcome the threat of the coronavirus. That's the kind of creativity I'm talking about. That's what we need and that's what we're seeing in our finest hour as we meet this very, very serious challenge head on. And here's one more thing that I, I want to leave you with before the end of the show. It's about how we deal with the new normal. If we choose to, or if we are required to shelter in place, then we need to remember that as long as that will last, we need to make the best of it. And more, make it work for us. And, and maybe there's something we can do to make the time better. Maybe we have an elderly neighbor who could use a helping hand, or a single mom who's having a hard time with her kids at home, or a family whose parents are out of work and afraid of what tomorrow will bring. Be a friend. Make life just a little easier for them. Sometimes a friendly face and an offer of help can make a huge difference in the day of someone who thinks life has deserted him. There is nothing worse than loss of hope, despair, despondency. And that, unfortunately, can be the result, can be the outcome of such a time as what we're in now. I don't want to leave you on a, on a low note. We're not at the end of this, my friends. But the beginning is behind us. And that is a big deal. And my mom used to tell me, 
Maybe your own mom may have said it too. She said, don't worry, this too shall pass. And it always did. And you know what? This will too. Well, we're almost out of time, my friends. And I want to thank you for spending this hour with me. The topics are not always pleasant these days, but they are important. And I hope I have helped you in some way by sharing with you news about these issues. Have a good week. I look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to the Weekly Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.